So um, this evening being the observance night, this is the uh, evening of the, we, we had our observances of our discipline, training rules, and it's much more than that. It's actually a, a fortnightly kind of stop, pause, you know, and come back to basic standards and also the sense of uh, our stand as uh, gone forth people, you know, not just the rules but the whole feeling for it of being in a, a lineage, in a tradition and way of life that's much more than uh, just meditation but whole some, something much bigger than our individual lives that's gone on for thousands of years which we can tap into and receive benefit from. So it's uh, all of us in some way have our own karma and our own, if you like, kind of day-to-day -day -day things we're doing and personal ups and downs. And yet we also have this uh, bigger thing that we can keep coming back to that helps to get some perspective on it. And so in accordance, I thought this um, period of time, this range retreat, which is itself quite a, uh, a formal uh, occasion in that uh, you know it, it's, it's not functional it's, it's just a traditional thing and it has certain benefits and it sort of keeps um, st certain stability um, it's limiting in what we do and try to you know, limit our duties to provide more emphasis on uh, introspection training, meditation, so on. Mm. Looking again always at these kind of uh, the form of our lives, what supports that, and also the inner essence of it, the spirit of it, and how these two can keep hopefully coming together and regenerating, refreshing each other. Mm. Anyway, I thought that it would be useful just to use some of these evenings to look at things more scripturally based and uh, um, and then perhaps have an occasion later on when we can talk about it together so it's a little more of a kind of a uh, say in-house or for people who've, who've made commitments it's not so Saturday nights often give talks just for visitors of course visitors are welcome but here I want to actually make the priority more for the people who have made a strong commitment to uh, the Buddha's path and the training. Mm. So, actually, it, it's quite relevant because what I want to look at today was um, how one comes to pick up a, a teaching and a training, how one applies oneself to it, what are the causes that make one make a commitment to it. And the three 
of course there are numeral discourses but I won't read the whole discourse I'll just read some extracts from three which I think kind of illustrate the process and might be interesting um, and the one the first one is called often called the Kalama Sutta which is in <coughs> collection called the Angutra or numerical discourses the um, book of the threes um, 65th and it'll also be one from the it's called the Chunky Sutta which is in the, the middle length sayings 95th and also one from the Kitagiri Sutta which is also middle length sayings I think it's about 70 yeah, 70th yeah, 70. And they, why I chose these two, they, they show different um, perspectives on the approach to a, a teacher and a teaching. And the Kalama Sutra is really for those people who have, don't have, yet haven't uh, a faith in the, in the Buddha or the Buddha's teaching. They're kind of open-minded, they're interested, and they're just looking around, and they're householders, and they're just saying, well, we hear all kinds of things, you know. Um, and uh, you know what? How do we know which is the right way to look, the right kind of teaching to look at? Second one, the, the Chunky Sutra, is to, given to us a group of Brahmins whose faith primarily is, is vested in the, the Vedas, the Vedic tradition. And here, the Buddha in this one um, talks more about primarily just looking at what is it in a tradition or in a teacher that gives you a feeling of authenticity you know? not the teaching not the teaching itself but actually um, the nature of the lineage you know? and the third one is to the group of of bhikkhus at Kitagari who had obviously gone forth under the Buddha with faith in the Buddha and it's a particularly um, a crucial moment because uh, it's the time when the Buddha said we won't be eating in the afternoon <laughs> so <laughs> this wasn't originally one of the training rules that people could eat whenever they liked but the Buddha said no I think we'll just cut it down and this caused a little bit of ripple amongst the brethren who said well you know what are we going to do that for so the Buddha here was making a firm point that uh, you know if you're you're my disciples you supposed to listen up and follow what I'm doing <laughs> so it's quite touching actually you know this sense of you know very earthy sense of dissent you know not about doctrines but about getting enough getting food in your belly um, so and uh, I think they they demonstrate in different ways but the same kind of um, basic Qualities are, are encouraged. There's a lot of uh, self-questioning and uh, uh, questioning the motivation, questioning of what's reliable, how can you know what's reliable, what can you test it upon. So, the first one is Kalama, 
the Kalamas are a, is a, obviously some kind of a clan or tribe or they live in a place called Kesaputta. I won't read the whole thing. So the introduction or an introductory piece. Um, they hear about the Buddha and they say uh, they've heard the, a good report about that master. Gautama has been circulating thus that blessed one is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, perfect, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed ones. This is the standard recollection that we chant. He teaches a Dhamma that's good in the beginning, good in the middle and good in the end. Reveals a spiritual life that's perfectly complete and purified. Now it's good to see such arahants. So they have a basic interest um, because of this reputation. When the Kalamas approached the Blessed One, some paid homage to him and sat down on one side. Some exchanged greetings with him. After greetings and cordial talks, sat down to one side. Some saluted him reverentially and sat down to one side. Some remained silent and sat down to one side. Then the Kalamas spoke. So they have different ways of kind of, first of all, some are very respectful, some are kind of, you know, relatively respectful, some are just basically polite. Um, Venerable Sir, some ascetics and Brahmins who come to Kesaputta explain and elucidate their own doctrines, but disparage, debunk, revile and vilify the doctrines of others. And some other ascetics and Brahmins come to Kesaputta and they too explain and elucidate their own doctrines, but disparage, debunk, revile and vilify the doctrines of the others. For us, Venerable Sir, there is perplexity and doubt as to which of these good ascetics speak truth and which speaks falsehood. The Buddha's reply, It is fitting for you to be perplexed, O Kalamas, it is fitting for you to be in doubt. Doubt has arisen in you about a perplexing matter. Come, Kalamas, do not go by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of texts, by logic, by inferential reasoning, by reasoned cogitation, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a speaker, or because you think the ascetic is our teacher. But when you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome, these things are blamable, these things are censured by the wise, these things have undertaken and preached, practiced, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. What do you think, Kalamas, when greed, hatred and delusion arise in a person, is it for his welfare or harm? For his harm, Venerable Sir. Kalamas, a person who is greedy, hating and deluded, overpowered by greed, hatred and delusion, his thoughts controlled by them will destroy life. Take what's not given, engage in sexual misconduct and tell lies. It also prompts others to do likewise. Will that conduce to his harm and suffering for a long time? Yes, Venerable Sir. What do you think, Kalamas? Are these things wholesome or unwholesome? Unwholesome, Venerable Sir. Blameable or blameless? Blameable. 
censured or praised by the wise, censured, undertaken and practiced, do they lead to harm and suffering or not? And how is it in this case? Undertaken and practiced, these things lead to harm and suffering. So it appears to us in this case. It's for this reason, Kalamas, that we said, do not go by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of texts, by logic, by inferential reasoning, by reasoned cogitation, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a teacher, because you think the ascetic is our teacher. But when you know for yourselves these things are wholesome, these things are blameless, these things are praised by the wise, these things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to welfare and happiness, then you should engage in them. So he goes through this um, process two or three times. It's a questioning. Um, so essentially, this does illustrate the Buddha's general manner when uh, meeting people, was uh, unless they were already his, his disciples and had asked for a teaching, he would, you know, he would generally say, well, you know, try to address what their concerns were rather than, you know, this is Buddhism, this is the Dhamma, <coughs> this is what you should be doing, but what's your problem? And then he would speak to that. So it was the beauty of uh, what one sees in the Buddha is that people would ask all kinds of questions from different positions and he'd have a way to answer that. So he'd bring the teaching to where they were at. And this is around uh, this area of just trying to figure out where you start, you know, how you get your feet on the ground. And there are several, this list of things that you shouldn't go by. And uh, loosely speaking, they can be grouped into three groups. The first is um, by the word of others, oral tradition, lineage, hearsay, collection of texts. You know, just by what somebody else says or what's in a book. Second is by your own thinking, considering logic, inferential reason, reason cogitation, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it. So it's your own thoughts, considerations. You shouldn't follow those either, um, or don't go by them. Or the third is just the um, sense of the living presence of the teacher, seemingly competent, or because you think he's a teacher, so we should be respectful, basically, that's it. So these three, he says, you don't go by any of those, don't follow them. But you should um, know or start to know what things are wholesome and unwholesome, and uh, that is to be measured in terms of whether they lead to suffering and stress in yourself and others or not. That's how you define it, really. And um, so, and then he, uh, he puts that question back to them. And the way that you, uh, interestingly, is these things are unwholesome, blamable, censured by the wise. So you do... Um, it's not just your own um, ideas about what's right and wrong, but also you look at the wise, whatever that they are, you know. So sometimes this sutta is used as a, a, a kind of um, a statement of, well, don't follow anybody else. But actually, it's much, it's not quite that. 
He says, don't follow the written words, don't follow your own opinions, which is the bit that mo a lot of people leave out. <laughs> you know. And then don't just follow a teacher because of their charisma, which again, quite a few people miss out on. But there is something you can follow, which is some innate knowing of what's good, harmful, you know, and greed, hatred, delusion, non-greed, hatred, and delusion. Very simple. And this is what he says is praised by, that's what wisdom is, to know these, uh, these experiences and to be able to step back from them whenever they arise. Then, so if you follow that, he's saying, if you follow that, that moral or ethical sense which you can know in yourself and people who, who are conform to that, you can feel a sense of trust and they're clear, they're not deluded. Then Kalam was that noble disciple, devoid of covetousness, of ill will, unconfused, clearly comprehended, ever mindful, dwells pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness, like, likewise a second, third and fourth, above, below, to others as to oneself, to the entire world. With a mind imbued with loving kindness, vast, exalted, measureless, without hostility and without ill will. And likewise with compassion, with uh, altruistic joy or empathetic joy, with equanimity. So because of this you, you get a sense of the uh, vast, measureless mind that's devoid of these kind of corruptions of delusion or of hatred, or of, of self-greed. So it's a kind of open, um, generous heart. Um, when Kalam was this noble disciple has made his mind free of enmity, free of ill will, uncorrupted and pure, one has won four assurances in this very life. First assurance is, if there is another world, and if good, in if good and bad deeds bear fruit and yield results, it is possible that with the break up of the body after death, I shall arise in a good destination in the heavenly world. So if there is such a thing as rebirth, then I'm on a winner here. Second assurance is, if there is no other world, good and bad deeds do not bear fruit and yield results, still right here in this very life, I live happily, free of enmity and ill will. So if there's no such thing as uh, rebirth or whatever future births then right now I'm living in a nice space you know because my mind isn't cramped and sour um, third assurance is suppose the evil befalls the evil doer you know so if doing bad actually gives bad results you know then by avoiding it then uh, I'll be free from that but if evil doesn't befall the evil doer still that's, then right here I see myself purified in both respects. In other words, you're not... Um, the, very, the very quality of, of doing evil has it as a here and now experience of something unpleasant. So for this reason, these Kalamas say, well, you know, we, we're, we've, we've appreciate that magnificent... The Blessed One has made the Dhamma clear in many ways as though you were turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, 
showing the way to one who is lost, or holding up a lamp in the darkness so those with good eyesight can see forms. We now go for refuge to the Blessed One, to the Dhamma, the Sangha. Let the Blessed One accept us as lay followers have gone for refuge from today until life's end. So that's their kind of um, just getting that sense of uh, being referring back to themselves or being asked to refer back to themselves uh, and so a confirmation or, or a return to out of speculation and uh, views, their own views, other people's views, it's something that's actually tangible, witnessable, bears results in this very life, you know, which is here seen as this sense of the uh, morality and this uh, loving, you could say, um, altruistic and uh, open-heartedness. And these are the two aspects of how we might say our first opening to Dhamma, you know, in that instead of being just so caught up in one's own personal gains, we have a sense of what's called conscience and concern, that is, you know, um, I don't do things that make my mind feel sour, petty, you know, increase the uh, impurities because I trust and I value myself so I wouldn't want to do that to my own mind and then my attitude to other, other people is goodwill so this kind of you might say this empathetic sense is you might see the first entry to, to Dhamma and it sets up the standards which you can then keep measuring what you're doing uh, and how you're thinking the second extract is from the Chunky Sutta and here the Buddha uh, a group of Brahmins with this one Brahmin Chunky went to the Blessed One, exchanged greetings with him and sat down at one side. So they didn't pay homage to him. <laughs> they didn't salute him reverentially, you know, because they're Brahmins. So the Brahmins tend to think, you know, we're the top dogs and this little shavelings are Kshatriya, just the one caste, next caste. They're not going to pay homage to, the, to this shaveling Samana because they're Brahmins and they've got this kind of great Vedic tradition. Anyway, the Buddha doesn't take umbrage at that. The Blessed One was seated, finishing some amiable talk with some very senior Brahmins. So yes, he's kind of having pleasant conversation. Sitting in the assembly was a Brahmin student called, called Kapatika. Young, shaven-headed, 16 years old, he was a master of the three Vedas with their vocabularies, liturgy, phonology and etymology and the histories as a fifth, skilled in philology and grammar, well-versed in natural philosophy and in the marks of a great man. So while the, while the very senior Brahmins were conversing with the Blessed One, he repeatedly broke in and in interrupted their talk. So he's obviously some kind of stroppy little fellow who thinks he's got it all sorted out, and he keeps butting in with his opinions. And the Blessed One rebuked the Brahmin student, Karpatika, thus saying, 
The Honorable Varadvaja, which I think is the caste name, shouldn't break in and interrupt the talk with the very senior Brahmins while they're conversing. He should wait until the talk is finished. So he's kind of telling this Brahmin student how to behave to his seniors. And the Brahmin Chunky comes in and says, Master Gotama, you know, so that's a kind of half polite way of addressing the Buddha, Master Gotama, you know. Yeah. Shouldn't rebuke the Brahmin student Karpatika. The Brahmin student is very learned. He has a good delivery. He is wise. He can well take part in the discussion with Master Gotama. So uh, the Blessed One thinks, since the Brahmins honor him thus, the Brahmin student Karpatika must be accomplished in the scriptures of the three Vedas. So he picks up the conversation and turns it towards this um, Karpatika and asks us about his lineage. Um, Well, actually, he, he looks at him and then the, the Brahmin student asks him a question. says, in regard to the ancient Brahmin tradition, Brahmins come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, everything else is wrong. What does Master Gautama say about this? How then, Bharadvaja, among the Brahmins, is there even a single Brahmin who says thus, I know this, I see this, only this is true, anything else is wrong. No, Master Gotama. So he starts to say, well, you've got this tradition which says we're all, you know, this is the right tradition. Can you name me any one individual within all this lot who actually thinks he personally has realized it, the truth, independently? You know, so he's not just following the tradition, but actually he's got personal realizations. He goes through a long list, and every, every you know, is this generation, seven generations previously ever ever heard of anybody who's actually completely realized um, full awakening through this. And each time he says, well, no. So he says, um, well, in this case, if none of you uh, personally completely realize truth, then suppose there were a file of blind men each in touch with the next. The first one doesn't see, the middle one doesn't see, and the last one doesn't see. So too, Bharadvaja, in regard to the statement, the Brahmins seem to be like a file of blind men. The first one doesn't see, the middle one does not see, and the last one doesn't see. What do you think, Bharadvaja? That being so, does not the faith of the Brahmins turn out to be groundless? The Brahmins honor this not only out of faith, Master Gautama, also honor it as oral tradition. Bharadvaja, first you took your stand on faith, now you speak of oral tradition. There are five things, Bharadvaja, that may turn out in two different ways here and now. What five? Faith, approval, oral tradition, reason, cogitation, and acceptance as a view as a result of pondering it. These five things may turn out in two different ways. Now something may be fully accepted out of faith, yet it may be empty, hollow, and false. But something else may not be fully accepted out of faith, that it may be factual, true, and unmistaken. So he goes through this um, process with each of these bases, faith, 
approval. So as you basically you, you say, oh, that sounds good. Oral tradition, this is what it's laid down in the scriptures. Reason, cogitation, you think about things. Acceptance as a view of result of pondering it. You know? So if any of these, you could, it could be right or it could be wrong. So, having kind of undermined all their positions, uh, they ask him, well, in what way is there a preservation of truth? How does one preserve truth? If a person has faith, Bharavaja, he preserves truth when he says, my faith is thus, but he not, does not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. In this way, Bharadvaja, there is the preservation of truth. In other words, instead of um, saying truth is a particular thing, truth means being honest. You know, it's not a metaphysical position or a statement. or a, It just means you're actually saying, well, this is what I have faith in. In this way, we describe the preservation of truth, but as yet there is no discovery of truth. So you're being honest, but you haven't actually penetrated So they ask him, how does one discover truth? Mm -hmm. Here at Bharavaja, a monk may be living in dependence on some village or town. And a householder, a householder's son, goes to him and investigates him in regard to three kinds of states. In regard to states based on greed, in regard to states based on hate, in regard to states based on delusion. Are there in this monk any states based on greed? such that with his mind obsessed by those states, while not knowing, he might yet say, I do know, or while not saying, he might yet say, I do see, or he might urge others to act in a way that would lead to their harm and suffering for a long time. As he investigates him, he comes to know there are no such states based on greed in this monk. The bodily and verbal behavior of this monk are not those of one affected by greed. The Dharma that he teaches is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful, sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to experience by the wise. So he encourages this way of, of investigating, scrutinizing, witnessing the teacher in terms of is there, are they, is there bodily and verbal behavior affected by greed, hatred or delusion? When he's investigated and seen he is purified from state, these states, he places faith in him. Filled with faith, he visits him and pays respect. Having paid respect to him, he gives ear. When he gives ear, he hears the Dhamma. Having heard the Dhamma, he memorizes it and examines the meaning of the teachings he has memorized. When he examines their meaning, he accepts those teachings as a result of pondering them. When he has accepted those teachings as a result of pondering them, desire springs up. When desire has sprung up, he applies his will. Having applied his will, he scrutinizes. Having scrutinized, he strives. Resolutely striving, he realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. In this way, there is the discovery of truth. In this way, one discovers truth. Mm 
In this way do we describe the discovery of truth. But as yet, there is no final arrival at truth. Difference being that this is, you might say, the, the, the learner's process. This is the way you discover how, where truth is through this process. You haven't completed it as yet. So the final arrival lies in the repetition, development and cultivation of those same things. So you might say the difference between a stream enterer and an arahant is just that the arahant has completely done the things that the stream enterer is just starting to do. It's no different really, doing the same process but carried it all the way through. What is the most helpful for the final arrival at truth? We ask Master Gotra about the thing that's most helpful for the final arrival at truth. Striving is most helpful for the final arrival at truth, Bharadvaja. If one does not strive, one will not fully arrive at truth. Because one strives, one does finally arrive at truth. That is why striving is most helpful for the final arrival at truth. But what, Master Gostama, is most helpful for striving? Scrutiny is most helpful for striving. If one does not scrutinize, one will not strive. Because one scrutinizes, one strives. That is why scrutiny is most helpful for striving. But what is most helpful for scrutiny? Application of the will is most helpful for scrutiny. If one does not apply one's will, one will not scrutinize. Because one applies one's will, one scrutinizes. This is why application of the will is most helpful for scrutiny. But what, Master Gotam, is most helpful for application of the will? Desire is most helpful for application of the will. What is most helpful for desire? Accepting the teachings as a result of pondering them is most helpful for desire. If one does not accept the teachings as a result of pondering them, desire will not spring up. And because one accepts the teaching as a result of pondering them, desire springs up. What is most helpful for accepting the teachings as a result of pondering them? Examination of the meaning is most helpful for accepting the teachings as a result of pondering them. So it goes to this similar process in each of these um, factors. If you don't do this, then you won't get to the next step, as it were. What is helpful for examination of the meaning? Memorizing the teachings. What's helpful for memorizing the teachings? Hearing the Dhamma. What's helpful for hearing the Dhamma? Giving ear. And what is most helpful for giving ear? Paying respect is most helpful for giving ear. One does not pay respect, one will not give ear. Because one pays respect, one gives ear. That is why paying respect is most helpful for giving ear. What is most helpful for paying respect? Visiting is most helpful for paying respect. One does not visit the teacher, one will not pay respect. What is most helpful for visiting? Faith is most helpful for visiting. If faith in the teacher does not arise, one will not visit them. So it goes through this process. Faith, visiting, paying respect, giving ear, hearing, uh, hearing the Dhamma, 
memorizing the teachings, examining the meaning, um, accepting it as a result of that, pondering, examining, getting the sense of desire or Pali word chanda, which means a kind of motivation, a sense of, yeah, it's, you know, interest, sense of purpose. It's different from this word craving or tanha, which is much more a kind of pathological um, black hole which you continually start to kind of feel inadequate. You know, chanda is much more a sense of feeling fit and ready to go. You know? So because of desire, there's application. Because of application, one begins to scrutinize or look at things in detail, look at what's happening in your mind. Keep, you know, don't blur, don't gloss over things, but keep very attentive, say mindfulness. And, and um, because of that, one strives, one kind of keeps a sense of, of um, commitment, of, you might say, keeping toned up. You know, keeping a sense of application, keeping a sense of keeping the practice going, looking in the blind spots, uh, testing oneself, the whole process of striving for the final arrival at truth. Mm. So when he says this, uh, formerly Master Gautam, we used to think, who are these bald-headed ascetics, these dark menial offspring of the Lord's feet that they would understand the Dhamma? <laughs> That's the way the Brahmins used to think of, the, of, the, of these uh, the summoners. Yeah. For Master Godra has indeed inspired me in love for ascetics, confidence in ascetics, reverence for ascetics. <laughs> so, yeah. so, in other words, with this, the Buddha is, is saying, you know, the, the whole sense of just... Um, Faith in the lineage, you know, could be right. It doesn't necessarily right. What's really important here is saying is the presence, the example of an accomplished uh, practitioner, a teacher. So you know, that's, you know, saying because of that, um, that's the first thing is a sense of faith, and then because of faith you draw near. So forth. So this is that rather than the, the um, you know, it's a living exemplar, someone whose mind is not swayed by. Well, all you can see is their verbal and bodily. You don't know what's happening in their mind. You know, verbal and bodily behaviour. That's something you can check on. You know, this doesn't seem to be swayed by greed, hatred, or delusion. Um, so that, and actually, that's. Um, I suppose very much why, you know, the, the whole, um, when you look in the, uh, in uh, some of the scriptures, you see that uh, many people would just be delighted at the sight of the Buddha's um, samana disciples because they look bright, clear, gentle, composed. Uh, they moved with a sense of grace. They weren't rushing around. They weren't sour they weren't crazy you know but they were kind of gentle and composed and steady and uh, they looked bright and clear so uh, and they said oh this is like you know faith arose because of that yeah. and so you probably recognize one of the buddha's first few disciples this group of five and then even though they were arahants and uh 
he said, well, just go forth, you know, start walking around and let people see. Uh, one of these uh, Asaji, you know, these uh, who Sariputta uh, met. And Sariputta at that time, he became the Buddhist chief disciple, was still a seeker and he didn't look around. But he saw this Asaji coming by and he thought, oh, surely, if anyone's enlightened, this one is, you know because of the way he was moving and the way his general deportment. That's kind of, this is the, you know, the thoroughness of the training. You know, it gets right into your body. It's not a uh, up in your head kind of thing. It actually just rewires the whole reflexes, the nervous system, you might say. So because of that, he drew near. And Asadi said, well, I, you know, even though he didn't say he was an Arahant, but he said, I, I, just, I really can't explain all this to you, actually. I'll just give you a rough, brief statement, which was the Buddha, the Tathagata, has seen the origin of all conditioned things, and he has seen their cessation, too. That's all I can say. You know? and, but that was enough for Sariputta uh, because the vessel that was saying that you know obviously had this tremendous uh, power uh, this man you know was talking what he really really knew and it was deep and I think whenever anyone speaks from their truth the real truth an embodied truth a sense in which you know they're not just parroting words or trying to impress you or come out with something that sounds fancy but really speaking from what they really know something in this actually lights up it doesn't have to be tremendously you know flowery or, or long you know you get a sense of something resonates and I think with these you start to get the sense of what the Buddha is pointing to like you know the absence of greed hatred and delusion something just picks that up you know and it's a, it's like a whole body thing. You get a feeling for that. And if you've uh, ever been in the presence of um, profound practitioners, I think that's why people love to see them because uh, it makes you feel good. You know, you know people like certainly my meetings with Ajahn Chah. You know, he couldn't speak Thai. He couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Thai, but. You know, oh, it was pretty clear <laughs> in a few moments this was some rather different, <laughs> different kind of being. You know, it's, it's a deep space, gravity, stillness, warmth, you know, and, and you could feel that. And it was nice to know something, in, and you could, f could f where, where do you know that, you know? And of course, Ajahn Chah's teachings, as you no, uh, really, verbally, very, very simple. And that's the beauty of it. Mm. So, th the last one. Is it 
town in in the Kasi country. Kasi, one of the names for um, Varanasi. So it's somewhere in that region. Lived a, there was a town called Kitagari. Now at that occasion, the bhikkhus named Asaji and Punab, Punabusaka were residing at Kitagari. A number of bhikkhus went and told them, friends, the Blessed One and the Sangha of bhikkhus now abstain from eating at night. By so doing, they are free from illness and affliction and they enjoy health, strength and a comfortable abiding. Come, friends, abstain from eating at night. By so doing, you too will be free from illness and affliction and you enjoy health, strength and a comfortable abiding. When this was said, the bhikkhus Asaji, which is not the same Asaji as I mentioned before, it's another one, these two are kind of renowned rogues. Asaji and Punabhasukha told those bhikkhus friends, we eat in the evening, in the morning and in the day outside the proper time. By so doing, we are free from illness and affliction and we enjoy health, strength and a comfortable abiding. Why should we abandon a benefit here and now to pursue a benefit that might be achieved in a future time. We shall eat in the evening, in the morning, and in the day outside the proper time. So in other words, you know, we're, we're, quite, we're quite happy with what we're doing. <laughs> so then they go, the, the other bhikkhus go to, to um, see the Buddha, tell him about this. So the Buddha says, well, come, tell those bhikkhus that in my name the teacher calls them. So they've been called, summoned by the Buddha, must have been a kind of slightly anxious moment. And they went to him, paid homage to him, sat down on one side. And he asked them about what they're doing. And they said, yes, uh, we find that's agreeable to us. And um, he says, he starts to talk about feeling. He says, some kinds of pleasant feeling, you know, just because it's pleasant, some sort of pleasant feelings lead to unwholesome states. And some pleasant feelings lead to wholesome states. Mm-hmm. Some painful feelings lead to unwholesome states, and some painful feelings lead to wholesome states. And some neutral feelings lead to painful states, and some uh, to wholesome states, and some lead to unwholesome states. So it's not the feeling. It's not to dismiss the feeling. It's you know, okay. It feels pleasant, but what does it lead to in terms of mind states? sometimes pleasant like renunciation often starts with a slightly unpleasant feeling does it lead on to a more skillful mind state Um, or not so and if it were unknown then the Buddha goes on if it were unknown by me unseen, unfound, unrealized, uncontented by wisdom. If it were unknown, if I didn't know that when someone feels a certain kind of pleasant feeling, unwholesome states increase and wholesome states diminish, would it be fitting for me, not knowing that, to say, abandon such a kind of pleasant feeling? So he's saying, you know, you've taken me as your teacher, and if I didn't know through wisdom that some kinds of pleasant feelings give rise to unwholesome states. Do you think I'd tell you that? You know, so what do you take me for? 
So he said, well, uh, sorry, no. <laughs> so he goes through this general analysis of feeling. And basically he's saying, you know, I'm not saying pleasant feeling is wrong, but some pleasant feeling, I'm telling you, you know, leads to unwholesome states and some leads to wholesome states. Then he goes on, it's rather long suited to talk about different kinds of attainments or uh, like um, stream enterers, you know, some get it through faith, some get it through samadhi. So on. Um, and he's basically <coughs> saying, you know, that the the way that you uh, you know, um, someone who is uh, who has had profound realizations, some sense of access to nibbana or the deathless. You know, they come through various channels, and uh, these are called the five faculties: the faculty of faith, the faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, and the faculty of wisdom. So with these, one is someone who is following the Dhamma, but you still have work to do with diligence. Because um, final knowledge is achieved as a gradual training, a gradual practice, and a gradual progress. And how is this? Here, one who has faith in a teacher visits him. When he visits him, he pays respect to him. When he pays respect, he gives ear. One who gives ear hears the Dhamma. Having heard the Dhamma, he memorizes it, examines the meanings of the teachings he has memorized. When he examines their meaning, he gains a reflective acceptance of the teachings. When he's gained a reflective acceptance of the teaching, zeal, which translated as desire previously, it's the same list essentially, Desire, zeal, chanda springs up, one applies one's will, scrutinizes, strives, resolutely striving, realizes with the body ultimate truth and sees it by penetrating with wisdom. So, see, you know, again, it's the same um, list, and we come to this interesting state in realizing it with the body. So, some sense in which that embodied sense which picks up when you meet someone who has, you know, who inspires faith. It's not just a logical acceptance, but something you, you know, your very nerve endings are calmed or inspired or gladdened. And this bodily, you know, getting it, that is, that's where you look for truth. You know, when you've got it, he says, then you, you actually even realize the ultimate truth in that same way. It's not just an idea, it's a real kind of subtle bodily shift, release, opening, you know, something in you definitely moves or releases. It's a bodily, you know, embodied experience. And the same way, these list of things, these list of qualities, 
And then he goes on to um, say, you know, well, this is, so someone who is on the path, who has these five faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, and they have worked on it and they continue to work on it through this process of faith and zeal, application, scrutiny, and so forth, till you really know it in your own body. Uh, and then he says, this is, you know, and then he turns it around and says, more or less, he turns it around and says, well, what about you? And he says, there's not been that faith, bhikkhus. There's not been that visiting. There has not been that paying respect. There's not been that giving ear, and there's not been that hearing of the Dhamma, and there's not been that memorizing of the Dhamma, and there's not been that examination of the meaning, and there's not been that reflective acceptance of the teachings, and there's not been that zeal, and there's not been that application of will, and there's not been that scrutiny, and there's not been that striving, because you have lost your way, because you've been practicing the wrong way. How far have you strayed, misguided men, from this Dhamma and discipline? Mm. <laughs> because there is a four-phrase statement, and when it is recited, a wise man will quickly understand it. I shall recite it to you, because try to understand it. So he's obviously, they're now rather cowed. Venerable sir, who are we that we should understand the Dhamma? <laughs> so suddenly he kind of drooped a little bit. Bhikkhus, even with a teacher who is concerned with the material things, an heir to material things, attached to material things, such haggling by his disciples would not be proper. If we get this, we will do it. If we don't get this, we won't do it. So what should be said when the teacher is a Tathagata who is utterly detached from material things? Bhikkhus, for a faithful disciple who is intent on fathoming the teacher's dispensation, it is proper that he conduct himself thus. The blessed one is the teacher, I am a disciple. The blessed one knows, I do not know. For a faithful disciple who is intent on fathoming the teacher's dispensation, the teacher's dispensation is nourishing and refreshing. For a faithful disciple who is intent on fathoming the teacher's dispensation, it is proper that he conduct himself thus. Willingly, let only my skin, sinews, and bones remain. Let the flesh and blood dry up on my body, but my energy shall not be relaxed so long as I have not attained what can be attained by manly strength, energy, and persistence. For a faithful disciple is intent on fathoming the teacher's dispensation, one of two fruits may be expected, either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. This is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So it's a different tone there, you know, because um, these were people who had made a commitment to the Buddha, teacher, and gone forth, and they'd started to say, well, we don't really want to follow all this stuff that's being laid down. And... Uh, the Buddha didn't bother to argue about whether it was right or wrong to eat in the evening. But he said, this isn't really my concern. The main thing is, you haven't listened to what I've been saying. You haven't committed. You haven't followed it. And you're not even stream enterers yet. You know, you haven't realized, you haven't completed the path. I have. Um, so, uh, you know, 
I don't have to uh, explain or justify these things. You are you. You don't know. You haven't realized. It's up to you to follow it. So it's a, it's a, the same kind of uh, process of, of faith and application and uh, effort is outlined, but it's it it's it's printed much strong more strongly because um, those people had already made that commitment, and once you've made that commitment, um, then you know, if you haven't made the commitment, you aren't turning back. You know, you're saying, well, it's interesting, you know, you could, you know, and he's encouraging, you've made the commitment. It's not, you know, you don't turn back. Um, you know. And it obviously it points out, um, you know, the Buddha certainly putting the pressure on there on these people. But uh, as we recognise in the in the Vinaya training, even at that time when the Buddha was around and the, obviously he was embodying the teaching, living it out, still the Vinaya is the case history of all those people who had had faith, had made a commitment and lost the plot. You know, somewhere or another. And so the Buddha is saying, you know, you should not rest just purely on uh, on the initial burst of faith, but keep the sense of the training and the teaching, keep it warm, keep it well-tuned, keep it in mind. Don't let it go stale mm. until you have realized in your own body uh, the ultimate truth. And this is how you should use the teaching. So though uh, we all kind of <coughs> you know, value things like openness of mind and non-judgmental and feeling out for yourself what works for you, obviously the you know, how you practice you only know for yourself. Mm. The energy you have, the difficulties you have, the way you pace it. Still, we you know, it's to keep keep that going, and uh, you know, realizing that the the initial process is very much one of of being open-minded, but looking for the reference points, the absence of greed, hatred, illusion, where you can know them where you can rely upon them, where there's a common understanding of where those lie. Having established that, then, you know, you firm that up. You don't then sort of start, you know, kind of, 
you, know, you don't you, you fir you firm it up. You don't go back and start thinking of other things you could be doing, other ways you could be practicing. You firm it up. And this is the way of a deepening and a penetration, you know, of the of the Dhamma. <coughs> 